My legislative district, between the northern tip of it to the southern tip, I represent 135,000 people. There's a 20-year life expectancy gap, right? 20 years, 20 minutes apart. It's insane. Welcome to Empathy Media Labs, Maryland Subsidiarity, where we discuss state and local ideas that will improve our communities and shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer for Empathy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Jazz Lewis, who is a member of the Maryland House of Delegates representing District 24, and he's running for re-election with the primary vote on July 19th, 2022. Jazz, so good to see you. Thanks for having me on, Evan. It's good to see you again. So first question, could you just start with an introduction about your background and why you're running? Sure. So I'm born and raised here in the central part of Prince George's County in the state of Maryland. You know, my my family moved to this greater Washington, D.C. area for economic opportunity. My mother was from Brooklyn, New York. She went to a historically black college university called Norfolk State University and came to this area to get a job originally with the FBI and then later with the DEA. My father, who she met while she was in Southern Virginia, uh, actually was expelled from his high school, breaking up a race riot. And then he served in our military. When he came home, he met my mom. She didn't want anything to do with him, but he followed her up here. He joined IBEW, the Electrical Workers Union, joined the trade. And between her working uh, in law enforcement and you know, my father in the trades, that's kind of what put food on the table. You know, I, I went through our public schools here, graduated, you know, I went to University of Maryland, our flagship for the state. And my plan was to become an architect, kind of do something with my father, you know, to work with my hands like everyone in my family does. But the recession changed my course back in 07 to 2010, where I was working my way through school, playing guitar at local churches and things like that. The state legislature, which I currently serve in, proposed increasing tuition, which would have priced me and many other people out of our education. And the prospect that I would have been forced out of my dream because of something completely out of my control just sent me off the deep end. So me and about 600 of my buddies, you know, went to the president of the university's office and decided to not leave. And then between him and the legislature, they somehow found the money. So that generated an organizing bug in me, which led to me becoming a community organizer, later led me to getting a master's in public policy, to which how me and Evan first met as graduates of the same program, to me working as a senior policy advisor to majority leader, Congressman Steny Hoyer. And it led me to run for office because it wasn't just enough to see the problems that were going on in the ground level to advise on policymakers on where I think it should go, particularly after Trump got elected in 2017. I knew that we need the next generation to start stepping up and be the change we want to see. So I got elected. I currently serve as chair of the Democratic Caucus in the Maryland House of Delegates, which is a fancy title saying it's my job to herd the cats. But I've been really proud of our work because over my time there, we've banned the bots. We've given access to the ballot back to folks. We've expanded access to the ballot with mail-in voting. We have, you know, the right to reproductive health and freedom on the ballot here in the state of Maryland. Despite whatever the federal government does, we've increased teacher pay and much more. And uh, we're just getting started. And so looking at your platform, you have four major pillars. First one is healthcare for all, something dear to my heart. Could you talk about what this plan is and, and why you made this one of your four pillars on the platform? 
Yeah. So when I when I think and speak about healthcare for all, I think about it in two major categories. One is making sure that families don't go broke, trying to take care of themselves and their loved ones. And the other side is making sure that people receive adequate care in the first place that is culturally relevant and responsive to the needs of the people who are there. I have been fortunate. I've never had a major sickness personally, but my father, when he was alive, he got diagnosed with sepsis, just like an infection of the blood and it almost killed him. Now in his case, he was a veteran. So, you know, he had the VA, but uh, because of the chronic underfunding of the VA, it took him really long time to actually see a doctor and get that care in between his visits. And, you know, one of the things I thought about because of how sick he was, he stopped working. If he wasn't a veteran, he would not have had coverage. You know, people shouldn't go broke because they get sick. It's not their fault, you know, and uh, other nations have solved this problem through taking care of other people. That's the job of government to ensure a high quality of life for its citizens. The other thing is making sure that we fund our healthcare system appropriately so that people can get uh, care when they need it, you know, in their community so that we don't have what we would call healthcare deserts. In my legislative district, between the northern tip of it to the southern tip, I represent 135,000 people. There's a 20-year life expectancy gap, right? 20 years, 20 minutes apart. It's insane. Now, what's what's the difference? Well, on the northern tip, folks are more educated, more fluent, you know. On the southern tip, you know, it borders DC, it's 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 lower income and you know, less homeowners and, and things like that. The other thing is most of our doctor's offices are in the northern tip, right? Literally, health clinics are more available in the areas where folks have more resources. So I helped to pass a bill called the Health Equity Resource Community Initiative to incentivize our healthcare practitioners locating where the need is greatest. So this is literally subsidizing their business model, paying off the student loans for them and their employees to let them know that we're serious. You know, and after I passed that in the state, Congressman Anthony Brown introduced the exact same bill federally to take it nationwide. But, you know, I think, you know, I think it's completely unacceptable for us to allow families to go broke because they can't afford healthcare. Yeah, and I, I do love the fact that you emphasize it, that healthcare is a human right and we should make sure that everyone is given it and we just got to figure out how to organize our resources around it. So you also look at criminal justice and you passed the Juvenile Restoration Act. Could you talk about what that is and what are some of your focuses going into the next term? So the Juvenile Restoration Act, they bill that was focused on giving juvenile lifers an opportunity at a second chance. And when I say juvenile lifers, that, are, that is people who've been sentenced to life without the possibility of parole or life equivalent sentences, which means that, you know, you were a minor, you were 16 years old, 14 years old, 17, and you were given a sentence of 20 years or longer, you know, which is what we consider effectively a life sentence. After you serve 20 years of that term, my bill entitled you to a review before a judge where you can essentially present your case of seeing if time is served. Why would I do that? Well, we know in the state of Maryland, that is 30% African-American, that those who are sentenced to life in life equivalent sentences, over 82% of them in the state of Maryland are black. You know, we know just based on the data that it's not like, you know, African-Americans or folks of color are committing violent crimes at a significantly higher rate than others. The thing is, our prosecutors are choosing to charge some people with 
you know, involuntary manslaughter or other things that gets less time than they than they're doing with African-Americans and Latinos, you know, but particularly African-Americans. And that's just not right. It's not just. We also know that when the vast majority of these individuals currently in the state who are, who are incarcerated, uh, they were incarcerated before we started using DNA. So it's not even, you know, as we've started applying DNA to a lot of these cases, it's not even a given that these folks did the things they were convicted of, right? So the Juvenile Restoration Act gives them a chance to go before a judge, to present their cases saying, hey, it's 20 years. I, I may have did something stupid when I was 14, when I was 17. I'm 37 now, or I'm 45, or I'm 50. I am a different man or woman. This is what I have done over my time. And I'd like to not die in prison. And that's, you know, other states have passed it too. It was a bipartisan effort here in the state. Our governor did veto it and we overrode his veto. But me as a younger, you know, Black Democrat from the Washington suburbs, I sponsored it on the House side. The sponsor on the Senate side was a older white male Republican from rural Baltimore County. He came to the same issue for fiscal reasons of saying, you know, if the data shows that when we let these folks out who served 20 years, their likelihood to recidivate is less than 1%. Why are we wasting state resources when we could give a tax break to our seniors, when we can pay our teachers better, you know, where we can do more with the resources that we have and not break up communities. So I was really proud of that. Um, and we're going to have a lot of people potentially coming home because of that bill. I passed another bill after that one called the Maryland New Start Act. So we know that people are going to be coming home because of the bill that I passed, potentially thousands of people. But where are they coming home to? So the Maryland New Start Act dedicates resources to job training for a number of our returning citizens so that they can earn a living to sustain themselves because we know that one part of people's likelihood to recidivate is based off of getting gainful employment within six months of getting out of prison. So we're going to make sure that happens. The other thing we realize is that a lot of these individuals are very entrepreneurially inclined. Uh, so my bill also set aside close to a million dollars in microloans, zero to very low interest, about low interest, I mean, less than 1% for these individuals that if they have viable business ideas, that the state will be the issuer of the loan to them because we know that the discrimination they face often in, in banking and the capital markets. And I also think that's going to be a great idea because we know that the folks who are least likely to discriminate against someone who has a record is an employer who came from that same background, you know? So it's an attempt to, you know, give them life once again. Yeah. How we house our inmates and how much money we spend on it, especially for, you know, nonviolent crimes and things like that is just insane. So looking at some other pillars in your platform, protecting our democracy. I love the idea of improved access to the ballot, automatic voter regis registration, expanding mail-in voting and drop boxes across the state. I, I love the access. And then what is a people first economy as a, another part of your platform? Yeah. So I, I started my career as a community organizer paid by a union, the Service Employees International Union. So when I think about the economy, I believe that the economy does well when our people do well. You know, it's I am all about us investing in our infrastructure, but the most critical infrastructure piece that we have are the people who do the work, you know, their intellectual capital, their ability to reach and accomplish their dreams is what's critically important. So in my people first economy, I talk about making, ensuring that, you know, every citizen receives a world-class 
public education so that your, the quality of your education and therefore largely your reach isn't limited based off the zip code where you lay your head at. I make sure that we pay people a decent wage because when we can pay people a decent wage, they can invest in themselves and in their family. You know, it, it kind of flipping the idea of like, you know, this is an investment in our people, making sure that college is affordable, if not fully free, because, you know, the ideas that come from vocational and, and, and a college education, not only guarantees, or I shouldn't say guarantee, increases the likelihood of someone reaching or staying in the middle class. But you just think back to World War II. And so many of our soldiers coming home and being given the GI Bill and that ability to get a education, what happened during the 50s and the 60s? You know, our economy exploded, not because we built more trains or just because we built more bridges. We had more engineers. We had more architects, right? We supported our people and being able to further themselves. I think paid leave is part of that as well. You know, I think our workers can work more effectively and efficiently at the job if they're not worried about their families being sick. They can go and take care of them. You know, I think this conversation we are having nationally about, you know, abortion access and rights should be flipped on its head. We should have expanded access to childcare, not just pre-K, but universal childcare, even down to near newborns. Because, you know, if, if families can, you know, if young families don't think that having a child will limit their economic reach in life, they still have the time and availability to get an education, get an apprenticeship, pursue their career because we have free daycare or near free daycare or things like that, then I think we could bring folks together more on this issue. I think everyone deserves to have the right to abortion if if that's what someone wants to choose, but we should flip the conversation on his head. And that's part of a people first economy as well. You know, you know, because if you're stuck in a dead end job, because, you know, you have to take that to support your family and not invest in yourself, that limits the growth of our economy, you know? So that's, that's where I'm at. I think if we invest in our people, our economy will follow. I, I really appreciate that your background, your father was an International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, IBEW. You worked in SEIU. Myself, I've always been an unorganized worker, meaning I've never really been in a union. And I've benefited, though, from all of the union organizing around me. My grandfather was in the 1930s in Cleveland, and they were killing people trying to organize steel mills at that time. And eventually he became in the union as well, which provided for my mom and one of the reasons why I'm here. So making sure that jobs are at union wages, union protections, it's a democratic workplace. There hopefully are pensions in there as well. And I, I know the Apple store just recently was organized, one of the first in the country. Starbucks. Yeah. And and we see Starbucks organizing. So I, I really think that having Maryland just focus on really promoting the unions and, and union labor is, is a really great way to go as well. So I, I appreciate that. We only have a few more minutes. I do want to talk a little bit about public works on trains and on energy systems. Those are two things that I'm very interested in on transportation and, and energy. What are some of your views on the transportation on the Mark train, on the purple line, the red line, the maglev train and those type of things as well? So I'm a big proponent of transit-oriented development of, you know, I think by us building, particularly 
you know, affordable units close to our transit centers, be that, you know, our mega bus stations, as well as our WMATA or will eventually be the Purple Line, things like that. We're able to bring employers close to the people and therefore encourage more walking and healthier living and the type of things that we need, getting cars off the road and more people leveraging public transportation. I also think will be very helpful. And I propose bills to do so. Maglev is an interesting one. You know, I I have a, a bit of a beef with Maglev, I will be honest with you. Not because of technology. I think it's a phenomenal technology. And we need to figure out how does it fix in the portfolio moving forward. But like I said before, it has to be equitable. You know, I think the proposal for how to build the maglev train would connect DC up to New York ultimately. And I was told that the price would be about $2 per mile. So just think about it going to Baltimore, which is about 40 miles away from Washington, DC. You know, that is a one-way $80 ticket. Now you can get there in 15 minutes, but that's not a worker price, right? Going commuting back and forth every day for work. Going all the way up to New York, which is likely, I'm just rounding here, 200 something miles. That's a $400 one-way ticket. That is not for the workers. You know, so I, I support the technology. I just don't think the public should subsidize it. And I think if there's a way to make it. And we should encourage that because the corridor in the Northeast is very densely packed. And I, I, I do believe it's part of the portfolio. But if, if the end user cost is going to be prohibitive for the everyday worker, then I don't think public money should go into it. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then I always have to kind of ask the question on nuclear energy because I know so many people on the left are have been anti-nuclear energy. I once was from that camp and now I'm very pro. And there is Calvert Cliffs is a very powerful generation station, not too far outside of your district. What, what are your thoughts okay. on nuclear energy? Yeah. I'm pro nuclear as well. I think it's, look, I, you know, the, the critical issue globally of our time, I think nationally within the United States, it's racial equity in its forms, but globally it's the climate crisis, right? And if we are going to curb our emissions, the best way to do that is scaling safe, modern nuclear. And we can do so. We see France and other folks, you know, supplying way more carbon-free energy to their national grid. Using nuclear, we could reach that. I think, you know, based off of movies in the past, a lot of people have been terrified. Most of the issues are tied to, even if you looked at Nagasaki, those are very, very old plants. I imagine now probably needed to be decommissioned and modernized and the like. But we're talking about 70 plus years of innovation. You can think about where the automobile was 70 years ago to now. You can't compare it the same. But I think the way we reach a distributed power generation where, you know, our grid isn't necessarily, our power generation isn't so dependent upon foreign influence, but we can also curb our emissions. Nuclear is the only answer. You know, our solar generation and when they aren't at the, neither the generation or battery storage capacity yet to do what we need them to do. Uh, and we clearly need to move off of natural gas. You know, coal is a done deal. So, you know, the bridge currently is clearly nuclear. And I'm a, I'm a strong supporter of that. I just think it's, if we're being responsible and everything that I do is thinking about my son and the world that he's going to inherit, I think we have to be real with ourselves. And I think the real answer currently is nuclear. And they're good jobs or union jobs. You look at the 
parking a lot of people who are working at Calvert it's long term it's it's very base load yeah. consistent I mean, everything like know, that IBW electrical workers union are over there you know machinists I believe are there as well doing phenomenal jobs the other thing I will tell you the the modern nuclear sites or at least the plans for them you know because some people get so concerned on the you know well you know, these facilities, they take up dozens to hundreds of acres and whatnot. The new ones don't, you know, they may take a couple dozen acres, not several hundred, and therefore they won't take as long to build and scale. Their power generation will be smaller, but it allows us to have a distributed power grid in a way that allows us to be so much more resilient. I mean, you think about when power goes out because of a storm, if you could turn on these smaller units to kind of, you know, up their capacity it, it could just be phenomenal for us to just build the, the the new world that we all want to get to well last question where do you find hope and what motivates you every day i find hope and what motivates me every day in the same place and that's you know it, it sounds corny but it's honestly it's in the eyes of my baby boy you know i my father passed away new year's eve going into 2020 and then a month later, my wife let me know that we were pregnant with my baby boy in February. And then in March, the world shut down because of the pandemic. And I think the world saw what many in my neighborhood have had already known with the health inequities, the racial inequities, criminal justice reform, economic, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, the whole nine, who was let go of their jobs, you know, housing insecurity, all these things all of a sudden became a national issue. And it created a, a higher level of a conviction in me because I started to think, now I was already working on these issues, but having a, bringing a young baby boy into this world, particularly a black boy into this world where all I was seeing on TV was the murder of black children, frankly, it felt irresponsible if I wasn't doing everything possible to make this world as good as it can be. Uh, what what I think about every day is the world he's going to inherit. But my hope also comes from him because he's always smiling. And I see some of the younger activists who came behind me now and how aggressive and bold they are. And I think about the generation that my son will be if, you know, we think the folks right now are bold, yet where will they be, right? And it's up to us to create the conditions to allow them to go so much further. So that's what excites me. Jazz Lewis, Maryland House of Delegates representing District 24 and the primary on July 19th, 2022. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on, Evan.